Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks given to the Farnham U3A World History Group. In this talk, Alan Freeland tells us about how different colours have been described through the ages and across the world. So this is a talk, it's not about our current pandemic, it's not about the NHS, but it is about practically everything else in the world. It's certainly about rainbows, uh, light and dark, black and white, but also about evolution, the evolution of species and the evolution of ideas. It's about science, about savages, civilization, nature and nurture, political correctness, anthropology, linguistics, etymology, and a Swedish train crash. I titled the talk A History of the Meaning of Colour Terms, and perhaps a more complete title might be A Perplexing History of the Meaning and Implication of Colour Names as Prompted by Gladstone's Analysis of Homer. But let's stick with the history of the meaning of colour terms as sagely advised by Michael. The talk is a history of the subject, starting with Gladstone and coming up to the present day. During the talk, we'll meet cultures that do things differently to us, in ways that may challenge our fundamental beliefs, not in a big way, but it could be unsettling. And I must apologise for those of you with some form of colour blindness. Some of the slides won't be quite as meaningful as they could be. My father was a red-green colour blind, and he started his career as an electrician, which I always thought was rather a dangerous choice. The inspiration for most of this talk is a book called Through the Language Glass by Guy Deutscher. As a way of an example, here are four examples of the use of words, white, red, black, and blue, where if we're being pedants and ignoring the very rich baggage that these words come with, we would question if we were using the right color words. Purely on color grounds then, shouldn't white wine be yellow wine? Shouldn't red cabbage be mauve or purple cabbage? And shouldn't black cherries be red cherries? And British skies are far more often gray than blue. And as an example of the baggage colour words can carry, look at some of the meanings for the word green. Green has a much stronger association with nature than with colour. So all I'm saying is be aware that the way we name the colour of things in English perhaps isn't as straightforward as it would first appear. Before this class, and hopefully as a way of a little bit of fun, although I know it caused a little bit of frustration to one or two people, you were sent this colour spectrum and asked to email me with, from your perspective, what number do each of the five listed colours start on and end on? So, for example, if you thought the orange colour started around the number 23 and finished around the number 25, then you recorded orange started at 23 and yellow started at 25. And this chart underneath the spectrum, this chart shows the lowest and highest numbers I received for each colour. And I've split out the girls from the boys. So, for example, the girls thought red started somewhere between 2 and 14 and finished somewhere between 17 and 21, whilst the boys thought that red started somewhere between 6 and 17 and finished somewhere between 20 and 24. As you see, given the limited vocabulary I allowed you, even amongst this fairly homogenous group, there are some shades of colours that some of us would use one colour word for, whilst others would use a different colour word. If I take the average of the range for each colour, then the colour that spanned the widest range on average was blue. Next was red and green, and last, yellow and orange. 
The purpose of this was just to show that scientifically, we can't rely on the terms people use for different colors because we all have different views. The test was just as much dependent on the technology you use to display the colors as your eyesight and your concept of color names. In the middle of this chart is the same color spectrum as you saw before. On the top of this slide is a chart which has the brightness increased by 25%. And on the bottom, one where I have decreased the brightness by 25%. This chart thus reminds us what we all know, that it's easier to distinguish bright colors than dim colors. This is why I asked you to check the brightness of your monitor before naming the colors. Notice in particular how much more dominant yellow and blue are with increased brightness. So the answers you, you gave to where the different colors start and finish would have depended on four things. Your eyesight, your views of what the color terms mean, the brightness settings of your screen or your printer, and the color accuracy of your screen or printer. This little exercise is giving us a clue that the history of color names may not be as straightforward as one might suppose. I also ask you to do a simple color perception test. There are far more comprehensive versions available, but again, just for a little bit of fun, this will give us an idea of how much variation there is in the group in being able to detect different hues of the same color. And ladies, you may have a genetic advantage in this test because the average is amongst the, the UK population is six or seven. That's, that's the score that most people will get. And I think we are above average. And given that with age, our ability to discriminate shades uh, declines. So now that we've warmed up our color senses, we are ready for Gladstone. So the 19th century was a great time for British explorers. Mary Kingsley in West Africa, Sir Richard Francis Burton and John Speke exploring for the source of the Nile, and Ernest Shackleton and Robert Scott in Antarctica, to name just a few. In 1855, David Livingston is believed to be the first European to view Victoria Falls on the Zambezi River on the borders between Zambia and Zimbabwe. All these explorers showed great courage and resourcefulness and great physical endurance. I haven't researched whether the sun was shining when Livingston first saw the falls, but it seems highly likely since on average this area has eight hours of sunshine a day. And if it was sunny, he would have certainly have seen rainbows created by the spray. How much of a romantic he was, I also don't know. And whether his education in Latin, Greek and Hebrew prompted him to consider the colours of the rainbow, I'm equally unsure. But three years later, an equally famous, resourceful and enduring contemporary, also on expedition, did stop to think about colour. In 1858, at the age of 49, Gladstone had already been Chancellor of the Exchequer, but not yet Prime Minister. He had spent the last three years as opposition MP representing Oxford University a constituency that until 1950 sent two MPs to Parliament. Given his intellect and energy, such a role was not stimulating enough for him. So he spent those years researching and writing a 700-odd page, three-volume tome on his beloved Greeks. This three-volume work was titled Homer and Homeric Age. I do understand that whilst many report that it's a very scholarly piece of work, it was too referential towards the Greeks for both contemporary and modern scholars. Few who start it ever get past volume one. History has been kinder to Gladstone. For example, at the time, he was criticized for believing the story of Troy. However, later scholarship has proved him right. Troy really did exist. Tucked away in volume three was a chapter called Homer's Perception and Use of Color. Some people must have read this far 
because this chapter was to cause 150 years of heated academic debate and division, and it is the story we will now cover. Having thoroughly, some would say exhaustively, analysed Homer's work from many angles, he noted that there was very little use of colour in Homer's writings, and what use there was implied a very different perception of the world from which we have today. He effectively argued that Homer and the ancient Greeks saw the world much more closer to black and white than our full colour view of the world. The most famous Homeric phrase that supports Gladstone's argument that the Greeks, or at least Homer, had a different colour view of the world is the wine dark sea. Wine looking is apparently a more accurate translation of the Greek, but wine dark has become established. But either way, Gladstone argued that this was just one of many examples of where colour descriptions were at odds with our current view. Other scholars argued against Gladstone saying, the sea could have been full of red algae, or sometimes at sunset it is a deep purple crimson shade. And the argument I like best, others argued that the issue was not with the colour of the sea, but with Greek wine, which was a blue-violet colour, not red. The hardest argument to counter was the use of poetic licence. But by showing how effective and poetic Homer's writing was when not using colour adjectives, Gladstone dismissed this argument. Gladstone made five specific criticisms of Homer's writing when it came to colour. The use of the same word to denote colours which, according to us, are essentially different. The description of the same object using colour words disagreeing one from another. The slight use of colour and its absence where we might confidently expect to see it being used. The vast predominance of the most basic forms of colour, black and white, over every other. And the small size of Homer's colour vocabulary. And with typical Gladstone attention to detail, he gave 30 pages of examples to support his point. For example, Homer describes sheep, iron, Odysseus's hair, and the sea as violet. Twigs, olive wood, and honey are all labelled green. Homer describes the sky as starry, broad, great, iron or copper colour, but never blue. Black is used 170 times, white 100 times, red just 13, yellow 10, and violet six times. In 1858, the term colour blindness was not known, but this is what Gladstone was proposing. Homer and the Greeks were colour blind. Gladstone proposed that the Greeks had not yet evolved a colour educated eye. And Gladstone further argued that it wasn't until colour was abstracted from objects by the use of pigments with artificial paints and dyes that an appreciation of colour independent from an object could develop. Gladstone's views were derided at the time. Just a reminder of the use of colour in the Greek and Roman world, here are three objects. A Greek vase in that very popular black and red style. From a few hundred years later, a Roman mosaic showing effective use of wide range of different colours. And contemporary with classic Greek, an Etruscan wall painting showing use of reds, greens, blue and yellow. I've increased the brightness and colour saturation of these images to make it easier for us to see the colours. Even in Gladstone's day, there would have been evidence of the use of colours by Greeks that went beyond Homer's language. Three months after Gladstone's book was published, Darwin's On the Origin of the Species was published. As George Bernard Shaw later wrote, everyone who had a mind to change, changed it. Natural selection began to be used to explain practically everything. Today, we recognise natural selection plays out genetically with the effects passed from one generation to the next when an egg is fertilised. This was not known in Darwin and Gladstone's day. 
And although Darwin proposed survival of the fittest and random mutations were the prime way species evolved, inheritance by acquired characteristics was also proposed as a contributing factor. So what does inheritance by acquired characteristics mean? If, for example, I'm a giraffe and I keep stretching my neck to reach the leaves higher on the tree, then my neck will grow a little, and this acquired characteristic will be passed on to the next generation. We know today this isn't so. It is only those giraffes that had the genes for longer necks in each generation that survived to breed when food was scarce. Scientists started supporting Gladstone's hypothesis. The argument went, good black and white vision, i.e. monochrome vision, was necessary for survival. Color vision wasn't. So early man was colorblind, and over time our color vision evolved through appreciation and practice. It wasn't until 1887 when a German biologist, August Weissmann, demonstrated inheritance of acquired characteristics was incorrect. His experiment was nicknamed by George Bernard Shaw, the three blind mice experiment. It involved cutting the tails off mice and then breeding from them and repeating the same thing with subsequent generations. Five years later, now on his 18th generation of mice and with 800 mice bred, not a single mouse had been born with a shorter tail. He could have just asked his Jewish colleagues if a certain rite of passage for small boys and also involving a sharp knife had become an inherited characteristic. The decade after the origin of the species was published, scientific debate was fixated on natural selection. A linguistic, or more accurately, a philologist genius named Lazarus Geiger picked up Gladstone and Darwin's theories and started researching the origins of color words. A philologist, by the way, is someone who studies the structure, historical development, and relationship of languages. From his Jewish background and his Greek scholarship, he knew that Biblical Hebrew and Homeric Greek didn't have words for blue. He showed that in most European languages, the words for blue derive mostly from the words for black, whilst in a minority of cases, they derive from green. He checked dozens of languages, including Chinese. And in 1867, he presented a paper to the leading scientists in Frankfurt, which said that in all languages, the development of words for color followed a fixed order. First languages developed the words for different shades of brightness from dark black to light white. Next was a word for red, after that yellow, then green, and finally blue. This was an outstanding hypothesis. Why should all languages develop in this way? He then asked what turned out to be the key question for scientists to solve. What is the relationship between what the eye can see and what language can describe? Geiger's insight in a world that used the lens of natural selection created a mindset for biological rather than cultural reasons for the way we describe colors. Gladstone had discounted language as a filter and assumed that people would have the language to describe whatever the eye could see. Lazarus's hypothesis is amazing. If you have an inkjet printer, it may well use three colors and black, cyan, yellow, and magenta. So why shouldn't these be considered the primary colors? One of the people who picked up on Geiger's challenge was an ophthalmologist called Hugo Magnus, and his work was dramatically brought to public attention with a train crash in Sweden. Two express trains collided on a single track main line between Malmo and Stockholm. The late running northern train was due to make an unscheduled stop at a small station to let the southbound train pass. The train slowed on approach to the station, but then instead of obeying the red stop signal coming to a complete halt, it suddenly sped out of the station again, ignoring the linesman 
who ran after it frantically waving a red lamp. Sadly, there were nine deaths and many casualties. The station master was convicted of negligence and sent to prison for six months. A specialist in the anatomy of vision at Uppsala University felt that the real reason for the crash hadn't been determined. And despite reticence on behalf of the railway authorities, managed to get agreement to test a number of the employees for their ability to determine different colours. Of the 266 railway workers he tested on one railway line, he found 13 cases of colour blindness, including a station master and a train driver. A new phrase entered the public consciousness, colour blindness. The train crash and Hugo Magnus's subsequent book seemed to prove the fact that Gladstone was right. And as Magnus wrote, the perception of the ancients was similar to what modern eyes can see at twilight. Colours fade and even brightly coloured objects appear in indefinite grey. It looked like the Greeks had no word for blue because nothing appeared blue. The scientific world was split in two, those that believed the concept of colour was directly determined by our anatomy and biology, and that colour vision had evolved over the last thousand years, and those that didn't believe colour vision could have evolved that fast, and the concepts of colour were an artefact of the language people used. This latter group, the critics of the theory that the ancients were colourblind, became known as the culturalists. Red-green colourblindness is the most common form, followed by blue-yellow colourblindness and total colourblindness. Red-green colourblindness affects up to 8% of males and half a percent of females in northern European countries. The ability to see colour also decreases with age. There was, of course, plenty of evidence the real explanation were not as black and white as was being painted. And whilst the examples I've chosen for this slide were only discovered in the first decades of the 20th century, there would have been many examples of how highly valued the brilliant blue of lapis lazuli was in ancient cultures. Given the only known source for lapis lazuli was the mountains of Afghanistan, this shows the effort that must have gone into acquiring lapis lazuli and hence the value with which it was accorded. For example, the mask of Tutankhamun is gold lapis lazuli, and it dates to around the 14th century before Common Era. The bull-leaping fresco was found in Knossos Palace in Crete, and it dates to around 1500 BCE. And the bull lyre of Ur, located in what was ancient Mesopotamia, contemporary Iraq, is from the Bronze Age, around 2500 BCE. There was thus a great appreciation of lapis lazuli for its uniqueness of blue colour. The origin of many colour words is still clear today. Words such as orange, olive, violet, silver, and indeed claret and burgundy show their pedigree. So it is easy to see how the original noun could have become an adjective. This presupposes in an environment you have other objects that are, say, orange, violet or burgundy. If one doesn't have such objects, there's no need for such a new adjective. This may have been the situation with these ancient cultures in using lapis lazuli. You don't need to have a word to describe the colour of lapis lazuli if lapis lazuli is the only thing that has the colour of lapis lazuli. Academic thinking had become polarised between the culturalists who believe grammar terms, and hence colour terms were driven by culture, and nativists who believe rules of grammar were encoded in our genes. Analyzing how different cultures and color words thus became a key focus for investigation, and early anthropologists started including color sensing tests in their surveys of primitive tribes in order to help inform the debate and understand what was truth. 
For example, Rudolf Virchow of the Berlin Society of Anthropology, he investigated the Nubians. Ernest Almaquest investigated the Chukchi Eskimos in Eastern Siberia. Albert Gatschet of the US Geological Survey collated evidence from interviews with lots of native Red Indian tribes in America. Questionnaires and colored charts or skeins of colored wool were sent to consulates, to missionaries and to doctors all around the world. And when the results came back in, half the evidence supported the hypothesis of Gladstone and Giga. The Nubians had no word for blue, calling blue colored wool either black or green. The Klamath Indians in Oregon used the same term to describe the verdant green grass of spring as the yellow grass of autumn. The Sioux Indians in Dakota used the same word for blue and green. The Chukchi Eskimos in Siberia had just three color terms, black, white, and red. And the inhabitants of Sumatra only used four colors, black, white, red, and yellow. Green, blue, and violet were all called black. However, the other half of the evidence, could the natives color match two shades of the same color? The results were equally emphatic. All the tribes had excellent color vision and did at least as well as the color matching as modern day Europeans. The feedback from the natives was always the same. Of course, they could tell the difference. They just had no need to give the different colors different names. This evidence refuted the hypothesis that the ancient Greeks were colorblind. There were still arguments that although natives could tell the difference, perhaps they didn't have the sophistication to appreciate the difference. A case of not being able to tell your clarets from your burgundies, perhaps. Perhaps their emotional reaction was less intense than in quotes, civilized people. Maybe it was like being able to tell jingle bells from Beethoven's fifth, but not having a need to describe the difference. Or knowing that place and cod taste differently, but not having a need to be able to describe that difference. It is easy to see that we're in the realms of political correctness versus ethnic hierarchies. So the man that established the importance of culture in this debate, although he underplayed at the time, was a British anthropologist, some say the father of social anthropology as a science. He had the grand name of William House Rivers Rivers, better known as W.H. Rivers. Now, William House Rivers Rivers is most famous for being the compassionate psychiatrist who treated Siegfried Sassoon for shell shock during World War I. He was an experimental psychologist for the Cambridge University expedition called the Torres Straits expedition to research a primitive tribe on Murray Island at the northern tip of the Great Barrier Reef. He was trying to establish the boundaries between acquired and innate aspects of human behavior with a particular focus on color. Through his four months of meticulous study and through his multi-volume reports, WHR Rivers provided valuable raw data for future cultural anthropologists to recognize the influence of culture in this debate. The Islanders' vocabulary for color was limited to black, white, and red. The word for red, like in many cultures, including English, derived from the word for blood, other colors had vaguer and more varied names. If needing to describe the color yellow, they would say like turmeric or like ochre. Green was described as bile color or pus color or like the waters near a reef. Blue, including the blue of a tropical sky and violet were universally called black, i.e. meaning dark. Once again, when their eyesight was tested, there was no evidence of any color blindness. Thus, despite all the evidence to the contrary, when the natives were clearly happy comparing the color of the sky to that of dark, dirty water, W.H. Rivers felt he couldn't fully support his own evidence. The sky was, after all, blue. And despite his better scientific judgment, he concluded that they must perceive blue as a duller color 
than we do. In many respects, our English fixation with calling sky blue and navy blue just two different shades of blue is the more culturally strange. The wavelength difference between sky blue and navy blue is greater than between sky blue and green. Thus, from a color spectrum viewpoint, sky blue is closer to green than it is to navy blue. So again, we should note our own cultural baggage we bring to this scientific endeavor. We perhaps should also know that our society is dominated by color. It is a deciding factor in many of our choices of cars and fashion. For us, brightness, texture, and shape seem to be less dominant determinants of an object's description. Maybe we as adults misunderstanding children's perennial question as to why is the sky blue? Probably like you, I have chosen to give a scientific answer to the question, why is the sky blue? An answer to do with how blue light is scattered more than the other colors. Perhaps what our pre-cultured children are really telling us is that it looks more like white or gray than blue, and why are we so fixated on calling it blue? Discussions about color were hampered by the lack of precision in defining color terms. And during the first two decades of the 20th century, Albert Munsell, an artist and professor of art at the Massachusetts College of Art and Design, created a more objective, quantifiable way of cataloging colors. In his words, he wanted to create a rational way to describe color that would use decimal notation instead of color names, which he felt were foolish and misleading. Instead of defining colors by a mix of so much red, so much blue, and so much green, Mansell described each color shade in terms of three things. The hue, which we would loosely call color and is dependent on the frequency of light. Chroma, which we would probably call saturation, how intense that color was or how diluted. And luminosity, which we would probably call brightness or darkness. When it is dark, all colors, all hues appear black. When it is too bright, all hues appear white. A maximally saturated color is what we consider a pure color. And I've shown you a, a chart here for blue. All hues that are totally unsaturated, i.e. they don't have any color at all, are gray. The human eye is capable of distinguishing a few hundred different hues, but when you multiply that by different levels of luminosity and by saturation, you get a figure around 10 million different colors that the eye can distinguish. As we get older, it gets harder to differentiate these subtleties. And I'm looking out over my lawn as we, as we speak. I, I have a lawnmower with a roller. And for those parts of the lawn that are in bright sunshine, I can easily see the stripes. For those areas that are in shade, it is much harder. Age is my excuse as to why the stripes are not straight. However, for anthropological studies of colorful language, Color diagnostic tests don't need to be that sophisticated. The World Color Survey uses around 330 color chips to do their studies. And so far they have surveyed over a hundred different peoples. So by the 1930s, what was the prevailing wisdom of how colors got their names? In 1933, a leading American linguist summarized the then new creed concerning color names. Physicists view the color spectrum as a continuous scale but languages mark off different parts of this scale quite arbitrarily. From the work of people like W.H.R. Rivers, the cultural dimension of the naming of colors was in the ascendancy. But there was still the thorny problem of the universality of the sequence of naming of colors that Geiger had first noticed and been repeatedly validated by anthropologists, i.e. the cultures develop words for red first, then yellow, then green, and then blue. If culture was so significant, why didn't people that live in deserts develop an early rich vocabulary for yellow? 
Why didn't people who live in jungles not develop an early rich vocabulary for greens? The questions didn't seem to be addressed in the early 20th century. Guy Deutscher argues that this is because the cultural and anatomical superiority viewpoint of the imperialists of the 19th century had given way to a condemnation of any concept of hierarchies in ethnic groups and investigating why one language or culture might be thought of as inferior, especially inferior to a Western culture was taboo. And we can contrast this with the common view at the end of the 19th century, that primitiveness was a state that you were born with, not born into. Albert Mansell's work enabled scientists to use charts like the one at the top to more accurately understand different cultures use of color words. The bottom chart is the consensus map for English speakers. This shows the color name that an average English speaker gives to 160 colors. Typically, people are also asked to pick one color which they consider best represents the color. And these foci are shown on this chart as black dots. Now this chart has restricted the color spectrum to 10 names. Let's have a look at how other cultures describe colors. Here is a comparison of English with Burinmo. Burinmo is a language used by tribes in Papua New Guinea. They have names for five colors, a very light color shown in light gray, a very dark color shown in dark gray, a red color, which we would split into red, pink and orange, and a green yellow color and a blue green color. In the mid 1900s, this kind of analysis has been completed for many different cultures. We turn to the next major breakthrough in our understanding of color names. While all our attention was being focused on man's landing on the colorless moon in 1969, came the next major breakthrough in the language of color with the publication of a small book called Basic Colored Terms, Their Universality and Evolution, written by anthropologist Bernd Berlin and linguist Paul Kay. Two of Berlin and Kay's findings from their research amazed the academic community of the time and set the agenda for the next phase of research. They overturned the prevailing hypothesis that color names were applied to the color spectrum in an arbitrary way. They showed that many ways of carving out the color spectrum were not used by peoples and that similar patterns were widely adopted by different tribes from around the world. Their second finding was what shocked the academic community and that was that languages acquire the names for colors in a predictable order. We've heard this before. Geiger had spotted this 100 years before and had shocked the academic community of his time but his work had long been forgotten. With their more extensive research across 20 languages, they were able to develop Geiger's model and showed that in some languages, yellow came before green, whilst in others, green came before yellow. They also showed that after blue, brown was next, and there started to become more variety with orange, pink, purple, or gray being the most likely colors to get explicit names. After 50 years of academic consensus, the color naming was due to the cultures we grew up in, Berlin and Kay showed that biology must have a strong role and the pendulum swung all the way back to nature. It seems that pendulums of the mind seem to prefer to swing rather than dangle. Textbooks and lecture notes now proclaimed using their political correctness lens that color was a striking example of the conceptual unity of all mankind. Culture now only had a minor role to play. However, as more languages were studied in depth, more variations started to appear and the five new preordained colors of brown, orange, pink, purple, and gray were slowly dropped as being preordained. 
let's just have a look at the color naming charts for some different people. And it's important to note uh, that scientists have shown that the eyesight of the different cultures was the same in terms of color discrimination. What we're talking about here is just the names they chose to give to the different colors. So here's a group of peoples that only have three or four color names. And also shown from reference is the English speakers color map. So top right, for example, the Wobi people on the Ivory Coast call every color as either white, black or red. One thing you will notice that for English speakers, the chart is banded vertically, which means that we pay less attention to brightness and luminosity in the technical jargon. For people with only three or four terms, luminosity is much more important in the allocation of names. So these charts tend to be banded horizontally. And here are some examples of for people who've got five or six color terms. And you'll notice again that the banding is still mostly horizontal. Notice also the similarity between top right, Papua New Guinea near Australia and bottom left, Guatemala. Why should such geographically dispersed people carve up the color spectrum so similarly? So where are we today in the color naming debate? To get us to today, we needed the inquisitive and learning of a politician and classicist, experts in etymology and philology, ophthalmologists, psychologists, anthropologists, and a professor of art and modern linguistics, to name just the ones that have appeared in this talk. The development of color names is still seen as an important tool in a major debate on the question, does the language we speak affect the way we think and see the world? Some research suggests, for example, that we can distinguish more quickly between two colors if we have different names for those colors than between two shades of the same color. I am purely speculating here, but in a particular area, if green snakes were harmless and tasty, and identically shaped and marked blue snakes were poisonous and not tasty, then the people who live there may well have evolved quite early on language terms to distinguish snakes by color. Because color terms exhibit both biological and linguistic aspects, it has become a focus of the study of the relationship between language and thought. To try and give you some sort of summary of current thinking, in 2006, Paul Kay concluded that, there are universal constraints on color naming, but at the same time, differences in color naming across languages cause differences in color cognition and or perception. Whilst the quality of the data improves and scientists come up with ever clever ways of devising tests, there is still no clear answer to the above question. The basic problem is that as one linguist has said, there are many languages for which the question, what color is it, has no meaning. So to conclude, I'd like to paraphrase some extracts from Guy Deutsch's book, Through the Language Glass, which was the inspiration and some of the source for today's talk. Gladstone's fundamental insight that the opposition between bright and dark was the primary basis for Homer's color system would stand today, virtually unimproved by current thinking on the development of color vocabulary. Not that anyone would admit today that the insight was Gladstone's. But perhaps the greatest irony in the whole story is that the seemingly mistakenly evolutionary model that Gladstone invoked at the very beginning of the colour debate was actually correct. The evolution through stretching mechanism, i.e. the acquired characteristics theory, is a perfect way to explain the changes between Homer's time and ours if we replace Gladstone's notion of biological evolution with the notion of cultural evolution. In biology, characteristics acquired within the lifetime of an individual are not passed on to the offspring. So even if exercise in the eye could improve one's own sensitivity to colors, 
the improvement would not be genetically transmitted to the next generation. But indeed, if one generation exerts its tongue and stretches the language to create a new color name, then the children will indeed inherit this feature when they learn the language of their parents. Likewise, in a society without a written language, if words are not spoken because they're not useful, the next generation will not inherit them and the words will die out. Even for words, it is survival of the fittest. Thank you. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A History Group, or the team at the Mr T Podcast Studio. This podcast has been produced by the Mr T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History Group. Thank you very much for listening.